Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. And I just got back from South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. And while I was there, I saw a lot of live podcasts, especially science podcasts. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as we have been mentioning all throughout the month, we're doing the whole tripod hashtag thing. So if you're unfamiliar with this, basically the idea here is to promote other shows by letting people know what you listen to. Uh, you say out on social media, Hey, uh, I like stuff to blow your mind. Hashtag tripod. People can search the tripod hashtag and find new stuff because let's, let's admit it. It's a uh, podcasts aren't the easiest in terms of discoverability, right? Yeah. There's so many of these days and, uh, that, a lot of bad podcasts out there, uh, <laughs> uh, but there are some really good ones. And then there's just a rich variety in what constitutes a podcast. Is it, is it people having more of a real conversation? Is it a tightly produced product? Is it all music? Or is it one of those, uh, you know, 100% silent podcasts that I'm hearing more and more about? Oh, those are the best. Yeah. It's just, it's not even white noise. It's just nothing. Just absolute emptiness you can just pour <laughs> yourself into. Well, the one, one of the ones that I saw at South by that really grabbed my attention was this, uh, it's pretty new podcast. It just started this year called Slings and Arrows. And they had a guest named Christina Durante, and she is a, a, a professor. She's at Rutgers University right now, and she specializes in studying ovulation and how it relates to consumer decision making. And so I was just fascinated by the stuff she was talking about. And I came back and I was like, we got to do an episode on this woman's research. So we took a deep dive into her CV. Basically, we read a lot of her articles and this episode is about ovulation, but then it's also about the research that she's conducted over the years, how people have reacted to it, because there's been a lot of criticism of her work. Uh, but also the real wraparound here, the real takeaway is that there's a sort of insidious marketing aspect to this as well, which is that uh, if you're able to track when a woman is ovulating and ovulation leads to different styles of decision making, then you could potentially market in a manipulative way to women when they're ovulating to get them to spend more money on something. Uh, And that was what Durante's whole kind of framework was. Uh, So so, for instance, like, um, you know, uh, these ovulation tracking apps, like my wife uses one of those. Yes, yes, I think I've heard of these. Yeah. Uh, so there's the possibility of using those to have like pop up ads or to for them to like sell the information of when you're ovulating to a third party. Uh, the, the other idea here is that like based on your purchase history that somebody working in marketing might be able to figure out when you're ovulating. It's real strange stuff. So I thought this is something that we really need to take a look at. Um, and this would be just one detail of our biometric information that we're going to be increasingly totally giving to machines and giving to potential advertisers, et cetera, you know, pop up ads like, Hey, I see that you're sweaty. Maybe you stink. Maybe you should buy this product. Yeah. yeah. I want to throw a couple disclaimers in here up front. The first being, I really wish uh, that our colleagues, Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvine, were still here so that maybe one or both of them could sit in with us and talk to us about this topic because they have just, you know, having worked on stuff mom never told mm-hmm. you for so many years, they've encountered so many studies like this and have a lot of experience with the controversies surrounding things like this. I think they could have given us a perspective on it that would be interesting. Uh, but I think this research is interesting enough that we should just go ahead and share it with our audience anyway. Now, that being said, we are going to tackle the subject with the same level of uh, care and decorum that we tackle any topic here on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Yeah, and another note I want to say before we start, we are definitely going to address this at the end, 
but these studies could be seen as very deterministic in that they seemingly propose that a single factor, such as ovulation, drives the decision-making of many women. And I think it's worth stepping back and acknowledging that before we even start, that there are many other factors that influence decision-making in both men and women, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think Durante would probably agree with us on that. But most of all, it's important not to read this research and assume, oh, it means that women aren't capable of making rational, logical decisions outside of their reproductive cycle, right? Like I could, I can imagine somebody listening to this and being like, oh, this completely confirms everything that I've ever thought about women, you know, and like, please don't take that. That's always the danger of studies like this, right? That because ultimately nobody wants to be reduced to a a mere meat puppet or a hormonal meat puppet, uh, especially if there's just one string. And generally what's going on with studies like this and any so many studies that cross our desk that that boil down to human behavior it's about looking at one potential string on the meat puppet. And, and nobody wants to. We want to be a very complex marionette pulled in different directions by a number of strings. And that's more in keeping with what the reality is. Totally. It's just that when stuff like this gets published and then the media takes it and they kind of boil it down and reduce it to its like uh, lowest essence, it, there's misinformation that goes around. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, there's been considerable controversy around these studies as well, even causing CNN to pull one of their stories covering one about ovulation and voting. And we're going to talk about that at length later. Some people have called this pseudoscience. Other people have referred to it as, quote, stupid, offensive and sexist. Uh, I think that there is something of value here. So we're going to look at this stuff. Well, first of all, we're going to just establish the the ground rules of what ovulation Mm -hmm. is. But then we're going to look at these studies and we're going to step back, look at the criticism. And then you and hopefully us together can kind of come to a conclusion of what we think. All right. Well, let's jump into it, establishing just what ovulation is. Many of you already are, are, are well informed on this, but we have uh, we have both genders listening in and we have people of different ages. So let's let's get down to brass. Yeah, tricks. I'm going to call this section uh, awkward sex education with Coach Christian Sager. <laughs> uh, so here we go. This is um, a lot of this information is right off of HowStuffWorks.com. And we have many articles about the reproductive cycle uh, and specifically ovulation. So here we go. Women are born with millions of immature eggs, and these are contained in multicellular structures called follicles. Now, each of these is about the size of a pinhead, and roughly once a month, or actually it's about every 28 days, though cycles can vary, the hypothalamus in our brain sends a signal to the pituitary gland, and that says, well, you should release these follicle-stimulating hormones. Now, that's important because that's the first hormone that comes into play here with these ovulation studies. These prompt the follicles to develop into mature eggs. One grows more dominant than the others, and within two to three days following its maturity, the egg will react to the release of another hormone, and this is a luteinizing hormone. This stimulates the sex hormones needed for pregnancy. It pushes the egg through the wall of the ovary. The follicle itself then sends out a call for an increase in estrogen production. So we've already got uh, what, like three different types of hormones that are being increased and decreased in various mm-hmm. ways, right? Now, between their periods, women ovulate. Usually, uh, now this is interesting. In the research, it said usually a week before or after, and my wife corrected me on this and took out her little app and showed me exactly where it fell. Uh, I think it's like, it's sort of at the halfway point. It can be irregular, though, uh, and it can occur even during a woman's period. Generally, though, most women ovulate between day 11 and day 21, counting down from their last menstrual period. So, How do you know when you're ovulating? Well, it's supposed to happen on the 14th day of your cycle. It's the time when you are the most fertile. And the symptoms include being able to feel an ache in the ovary area, a change in cervical secretion, a dip in body temperatures, and then subsequently a spike as well, increased sex drive, light spotting, a bloating feeling, and heightened senses of taste and or smell. Now, Oral contraceptives, though, they can suppress all of these symptoms, and that's important to these studies as well. 
Now, how can everyone else tell when you're ovulating? Well, they can't. Uh, unlike uh, many other species, such as uh, bonobos in particular, uh, humans undergo what's called concealed ovulation. And most primates have semi-concealed ovulation. Now, why? There are a number of theories here. There's the parental investment, uh, infanticide reduction, sex and reward, social bonding. And there's even a, a theory out there that it's just a mere byproduct of being a biped. Yeah, but like uh, Durante in many of her studies kind of establishes this up front in the papers, basically saying like, you know, with primates, you can sometimes tell that they're ovulating because their genitals are swelling, right? Mm -hmm. And so subsequently... Both male and female primates know, and that sort of changes how they socially interact with one another. Now, normally the one egg passes from either of the ovaries through the fallopian tubes. This happens once per cycle. And then when or if two eggs are released within a single 24-hour span and both are fertilized, this can result in fraternal twins. And we have a whole Brain Stuff episode all about how twins work. Uh, if you want to learn more, you can go check that out. Inside the fallopian tubes are tiny hairs called cilia, and they help pass that egg through the tube toward the uterus. This takes several days, and the egg exists in a perfect environment that provides it with the nutrients that it needs. Now, while this is going on, the uterus, which is prompted by signals released by the follicle that formed the egg originally, has formed an internal lining called endometrium. This is rich in blood and nutrients, and it's prepared to house and nurture the egg if it gets fertilized. Now, if fertilization does not occur, the egg disintegrates into the uterine lining that passes out of the body during the period. So that's the real basic sex ed class mm-hmm. uh, uh, that we're going to introduce here. That's the science up front of like, here's how the body works. Right. And we've related that there's a, a de- definite ebb and flow of behavior that's associated with this. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where Christina Durante comes in. So she is an associate professor of marketing currently at Rutgers Business School. She's a social psychologist that's interested in the biology of decision making. Most of her research mixes social psychology, evolutionary biology and consumer decision making. She was actually an entertainment marketing executive before hmm. she entered into academia. But now she focuses on women's consumer choices and luxury spending, family consumer spending, and how hormones, like all the ones we were just talking about, influence those decisions. Overall, her research presents a theory that ovulation leads women to prioritize the securement of genetic benefits from a mate who possesses indicators of genetic fitness. Subsequently, her research shows that ovulating women have an increased desire for short-term sexual relationships with men that possess markers of genetic fitness. And the, so if you're wondering what that means, uh, physical symmetry, for instance, or masculinity or social dominance. Uh, she has a TEDx presentation that is available on YouTube. Uh, it's from 2013. In that, she actually references the Yerkes National Primate Research Center that's here in Atlanta. Oh, yeah. And she's talking about how, in often cases there, there are fewer male primates than there are female primates. Uh, and when the females approach ovulation, they become more aggressive and they even attack one another. And that's because they're becoming more competitive for reproductive resources. That is really the very simplistic, broad framework for almost all the research that we're going to talk about today. Now, we've already touched on the fact that, yes, when, when humans ovulate, there's not, uh, there's not like a drastic change in colorization of the, the yeah. individual. And yet, we're humans. We wear clothing. So, this makes us, this actually makes us capable of any number of uh, colorization and appearance changes. Yeah. There are subtle ways in which we maybe do let one another know mm-hmm. if we're ovulating and we don't even know it ourselves. Let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to look at Durante's first uh, big paper on this, which specifically talks about ovulation's effect on clothing choices. All right, we're back. So Durante, I believe this, uh, so this comes from 2008 and I believe that this is, uh, maybe something that she was working on while, like it might have been her dissertation or it might have been something she was working on in grad school. Uh, she and others 
tested a hypothesis that women prefer clothing that is more revealing and, quote, sexy when their fertility is at its highest within their ovulatory cycle. And the results suggest that clothing preference shifts and could reflect an increase in female-to-female competition near ovulation. So going back to that Yerkes Center metaphor of the primates sort of fighting each other. All right, so the- ovulation, the feeling of intense uh, competition with other females for mates, and therefore the desire to to essentially improve one's uh, uh, selectivity. Yeah, exactly. So the methodology they had, they brought 88 women in to report to their lab twice. And first... On a, the first visit was on a low fertility day of their cycle, and then the second visit was on a high fertility day. Uh, and this was confirmed by using hormone tests. That's important. We're going to come back to that later. How they track whether these women are ovulating or not is extremely important to how these uh, studies get criticized. So in each instance, they had the participants pose for full body photographs in clothing they wore to the lab. And then they had them draw illustrations to indicate on an outfit that they would like to wear if they had a social event that evening. They also took surveys about their relationships, their social sexual orientation and their desirability. Now, I want to read this part from the study the um, instructions on how they should do the illustration. Basically, they handed them a bunch of colored pencils, and there's like a piece of paper that had like a pre-drawn female body on it. Mm-hmm. And it said this, Imagine that you are attending a social gathering at a friend's apartment tonight. From what this friend tells you, it is a large party where there will be a lot of single, attractive people. The party starts at around 10.30 p.m. Jeez, it's so late. I know. It's uh, Here we are. We're like, 10.30? Jeez. I'm going to be in bed by 11. Begin to decide on what you are going to wear to this party. Using the colored pencils provided, indicate on the paper doll what you will be wearing to this party by drawing an outfit, showing where the neckline will start on your shirt to where the shirt will end. Also, indicate where your pants, shorts, skirt, etc. will begin and end. So, they had these 88 women do this. They've got all these drawings, right? And to analyze them, they ran measurements on variables such as the total amount of skin that was revealed, the sexiness and the revealing rating of the illustration, and a composite rating of all those photographs they took as well. Okay. Their choice, there was a lot of like statistical stuff involved in there. I skipped over that because I didn't want to bore you, the audience. So, you know, there's a lot of math there. But if you want, all of this stuff is available on uh, her CV site. You can read any of these studies. So they found that the choices that these women made were moderated by other factors beside fertility, including their social sexuality, attractiveness, relationship status, and relationship satisfaction. So, for instance, sexually unrestricted women showed greater shifts in preference for revealing clothing worn to the lab when they were near ovulation. Now, there's you know, in studies like these, they've got to do a lot of literature review up front. And uh, this is no different. So related research they turned to indicated the following, that women's mating psychology is sensitive to fertility status and that ovulation could shift a woman's social motives and behaviors in adaptive ways. Women may experience greater sexual desire during these fertile windows in their cycle, uh, but the desire may be directed toward what are referred to as non-primary partners if their primary partner specifically lacks indicators they find attractive. So let's say, I don't know, you're married uh, and you your husband doesn't have a symmetrical face. Okay. Uh, during this particular time, you may be attracted to people who aren't your husband, whose faces are more symmetrical. I think that's what they're kind of getting at here. Additionally, ovulation can include an increase in a woman's self-perceived attractiveness and a greater motive for them to attend social gatherings. Hence this whole, you know, methodology of draw what you're going to wear to a party. Other research has found that reward-related brain areas of women experience more activation during the mid-follicular phase of the menstrual cycle. So this implies that they experience an increase in desire for immediate rewards. Another study argues that women become more competitive with other women 
during ovulation. Similarly, another study found that women closest to the expected day of ovulation were less likely to share a monetary award and more likely to reject a low offer to share a monetary stake specifically with another woman. So as you can tell, there's a lot of research in this specific field about ovulation and sort of social psychological behaviors. And I think already people listening to to the show here, you're hearing these uh, these arguments and you can already feel maybe a certain uh, amount of of outrage or sympathy for outrage Mm -hmm. uh, regarding what may sound like a sort of one-string marionette um, interpretation of human behavior. Right, exactly. And that is a criticism that has absolutely been leveled against these studies. Um, But when you add all of this research together, not just Durante's, but this, this other stuff, it suggests... It seems to suggest that women are competitive for resources during the most fertile part of their cycle. Okay. But remember how we were talking about those monkeys and how they could detect ovulatory shifts? What if it was possible for human beings to detect those in women based on their social behaviors? So some women report that their primary partners get more jealous or possessive when they're near ovulation. So the question then is like, how do these partners like detect an extra variation in flirtation or what about this? What if men can smell changes in hormones through body scent? So several studies have shown that men actually rate the smell of T-shirts worn by women on fertile days of their cycle as smelling more attractive than those that are worn on non-fertile days. This reminds me of the, I think there was like a scent-based speed dating. Is that uh, right? That I, I don't know to what extent it, it lasted, but it, it was making the, the rounds and various headlines uh, yeah. a few years back. Because the idea was, oh, well, we have this uh, his scent is going to be such a powerful indicator that you should be able to at least weed out uh, certain ro- potential romantic partners just based on the smell of garments. And so if you know this, then the idea is that you want to make sure you bring a shirt that you wore on the day when you were ovulating. I guess so. It, it, we kind of get into one-string marionette territory. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, so there's also another study. Here's a study that would should really be a runner-up for the Ig Nobel Prizes. A research study found that lap dancers earned more tips when they were near ovulation than other cycle phases. I believe, I remember this study, and I believe it did win an Ig Nobel oh, Prize. Oh, yes. did it really? I believe it did, oh, yes. okay. Mm-hmm. All right. There's growing evidence that complete strangers can actually detect cues of ovulation in women. But I think like what they mean here is like a lot of this is subconscious. It's not like I, I walk by a coworker and I go, Oh, she's ovulating today. Yeah. Right. You yeah. know, it's, it's like these subtle cues. Yeah. It's the idea. Yeah. That it is a, a, a subconscious understanding of what's going on as opposed to like terminator re- readout of yeah. saying ovulating individual. Right. <laughs> All right. So all of this comes down to this paper's hypothesis that women may alter their appearance to appear more physically attractive when their fertility is at its highest or alternatively that they feel more attractive near ovulation. And so they put more effort into their appearance as a result. Now, there's a third possibility, too, which is that it could be a result of the increased competition that I was talking about so that women alter their physical attractiveness to enhance their ability to compete with other women for those, quote, higher quality mates, that like genetic territory again. What made this study different from all the others was that it examined a larger sample of women who were both partnered and unpartnered. And this was in addition to women who had and who had not experienced sexual intercourse. Uh, and this was because psychological mechanisms regulating behavioral changes may be sensitive to sexual experiences. So they added the illustration method. They also took into account the individual difference variables that we mentioned already. And instead of using counting methods to estimate high fertility, days, like counting down from when uh, your period ended, they utilized ovulation devices to pinpoint and verify fertility. Again, totally important because this is something they get attacked for later. Mm-hmm. 
the researchers considered high fertility to be no more than two days prior to their luteinizing hormone surge and no later than four days following their luteinizing hormone surge. They did not include women who used hormonal contraceptives or who had irregular cycle links or who had had recently uh, performed childbirth or were currently breastfeeding or experienced dramatic weight changes or used antidepressants or smoked cigarettes regularly. So there's like this wide variety of factors that they just completely swept out of the study because those factors could potentially alter the cycle. So what were their results? Well, they found this, that women prefer clothing that is more revealing and sexy near the onset of ovulation, particularly when they're in mating relevant contexts. I guess that's shorthand for party. Uh, at a party. They sketched sexier outfits when they were nearest ovulation, but the ratings on the photographs didn't differ significantly. Women who were more sexually experienced revealed more skin on their outfit illustrations that when they're at high fertility than the women who were sexually inexperienced. And the results seem to indicate that women who were more open to casual sexual encounters desired outfits that were more revealing and they wore clothing that was sexier when they were at high fertility. This was preferred by single women over partnered women. Overall, the researchers saw this as a reflection of an increase in what they refer to as intrasexual competition, but it was moderated by their clothing choice. Their thesis is that ovulation was the key variable in deciding how we look and how that contributes to the day-to-day changes in, a, in how we decide to appear attractive to the rest of the world. Okay, so let's step back from this big study and remember that this all gets back to marketing, right? Right. So if you... Uh, are ovulating and somehow a marketer knows that. I don't know. Maybe it's like a department store that you have an app of on your phone or you've got some kind of subscription to an email service or it's like, um, like an online clothing service, like some of the people we advertise for, right? Right. And then of course, just the, the, the very safe bet that a certain number of customers are going to be ovulating when they view your ads or walk by your store or are in your store browsing. Exactly. So the idea here is that like that's the best time to try to sell these products that would potentially be more revealing. So take it or leave it. I don't, I, I, you know, we're going to go through more of this, but l- let's like always remember with these studies that sort of the context is that regardless of whether or not we believe in these studies, it seems like business people do. Yeah. And they're going to use this information to try to sell you stuff. Yeah, I think that's very important to keep in mind, as well as just the the, the normal <laughs> important take home on any study we, we reference here is that it's not necessarily the, the final word. Now, we've got another study here. This is the next one uh, that she did related to this on ovulation and product choice. I think you did the research on this one, right? Yeah, and uh, this one basically... It just springs off of what we've been talking about here. So, again, this is just talking about how peak fertility in women um, affects choices. And in this case, uh, found that they non-consciously chose products that can enhance their appearance. And this seems to be uh, driven by this desire to outdo attractive rival women. Okay. So this study entailed three experiments to see how ovulation affected product choice specifically, uh, namely the degree to which peak fertility women chose products that enhance appearance. So experiments, uh, these experiments entailed a virtual shopping uh, exercise and a charting of their ovulation. Uh, and a lot of this is very sim- similar, very similar methodology to the previous study, except with a, a different specific focus. So in the first experiment, women chose a greater percentage of sexy clothing in this online shopping scenario and accessories uh, items near ovulation. Okay, so that's the first level. Okay. In the second experiment, same deal, only they were primed to think about the attractiveness of local men and women via photo priming. Uh, women primed uh, with attractive women chose significantly more sexy products near ovulation, and the women chose sexier products when primed with desirable men, but these choices were not affected by their ovulation status. Interesting. Okay. Okay. And then the third experiment, same deal again, except ovulating and non-ovulating women were primed to consider, first of all, attractive local women, second, unattractive local women, third, 
attractive, distant women or for attractive, distant, unattractive, distant women. Hmm. Uh, so, again, the results indicated that attractive local women were the influencing factor here. So uh, the idea here being it doesn't matter what, um, you know, a supermodel in New York is wearing and looking like. But if there's some indication that this is what people are, this is what potential uh, uh, mating competitors look like and dress like, and this is how they appear here yeah. where you are, that that can have this impact that this can pull the the marionette strings okay so i could sort of see an idea here that like even though you may not live in the big city you're watching television and it's like uh i don't know it's a drama that takes place in new york city it's sex in the city Mm -hmm. right and you see how those women dress which i i wouldn't be shocked to find out that the sex in the city uh cast were like doing product placement with the clothing that they were wearing right right so that is supposed to subsequently make you think, oh, that's how at the, these vast distance attractive women are dressing. Right. How does that relate to how I'm dressing competition level, right? Yeah. But, all right, so I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I'm going to step out. So immediately, like what I think is, well, attractive, quote unquote, is such a subjective term. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Because uh, we don't have like a universal constant for what attractive is. So h- how does measuring that play into this, you know? Yeah. Like I could see that being an argument leveled against this. Yeah, it had this this seems to have a very like fashion magazine level understanding of what people find attractive. I mean because a lot of this comes down to clothing choices. Yeah. And one individual's sexy clothing is not going to be the sexy clothing of another individual. Right. Though I could still I could still see within the parameters of the of the experiment how those levels could pull, could come into play but say an, an ovulating woman who's really into the punk scene right. like her level yeah. of sexy attire and sexier attire would be different from the uh, you know from somebody who's i don't know uh, into goth totally no i was actually thinking about this that like subcultures in particular and and i and i don't know if this is something that durante has taken into account at mm-hmm. all in any of her studies she didn't talk about it but maybe it's something they're thinking about doing but yeah like various subcultures have various definitions of what attractive looks like right and right. what kind of signifiers there are and so yeah i'm not entirely sure how that works out especially like when they're doing the drawings i will also say this like when i watched her TEDx talk, she showed the actual images of the the drawings that people did. Mm-hmm. And the drawings that were considered like the conservative drawings of outfits that they were doing when they weren't ovulating. I, as a straight guy, was like, well, that's far more attractive to me than like these super short shorts and like halter tops that the the, the ovulating uh-huh. women were drawing. So like it's all subjective, right? Yeah. And, and not only subcultural, but cultural in, in, in general. I mean, yeah. certainly there's a, there's an argument to be made as with so many studies, like what was the sample group here? Um, were these just, uh, you know, a bunch of, of, of white women that you were uh, interviewing here, white American women, or were they different people from different, uh, races and cultures? So I will say that if you dig into these papers, like I didn't pull all of this for our research here, but she was very meticulous about how she documented demographics of age, uh, ethnicity, uh, sexual preference, all kinds of things. So, uh, subculture didn't come into it, mm-hmm. but, uh, but, but yeah, so they, they did take that into account and that's where she runs into a little trouble later on too, because she, uh, in a voting study that we're going to talk about later, she wanted a really large sampling study. Uh, and so she did it online instead of in person. Before we get to that study, though, I very quickly want to hit one more study that she did in 2012. Okay. And this was, it's not as related to the whole marketing influence argument. So I don't want to do as deep of a dive on this, but the, the, the paper is, is called Sexy Cads versus Good Dads. And the idea here is that they conducted three different studies to show that ovulating women perceive charismatic and physically attractive men, but not reliable and nice men as being more committed partners and more devoted future fathers. Huh. Specifically, ovulating women perceived what 
she refers to as sexy cads. Wait, what is a cad in this? So it, like their idea was kind of like she keeps calling it in the paper and also in this uh, TEDx talk, the bad boy. Like they, they show this picture of like a, a physically like guy, a guy who's in great shape. He doesn't have a shirt on. He's got stubble. Is his name like, cad? No, but, but like ca- cadet. Uh, what? Oh, cad is kind of like a, a synonym for like, you know, like a, a guy who's like loose morals. What? I've never heard this before. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm not familiar with cats. Man, you haven't worked the street. Huh, yeah. <laughs> now, I've apparently never been accused of being a cat. Yeah, either. sexy yeah. cats versus good dads. Huh. Um, but yeah, so uh, the idea was that these ovulating women found these guys to be more attractive as good fathers for their children. But wait, but then when they were asked if they would be good fathers for other women's children, they said no. Uh, and so this basically the breakdown of this without going through this whole paper, they understood this as being evolutionary behavior related to an ovulating woman desiring a man again with those strong genetic traits that they might pass on to their children. So these guys were symmetrical. They were dominant. They were masculine looking, right? And that I actually watched, um, the, again, in the TEDx talk, she showed some video. They hired actors to play these guys. Uh-huh. Uh, and the actor would do like, like he was instructed to act like George Clooney when he was playing the cad. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he just like was like overly sure of himself and kind of suggestive. And then when he played the quote, good dad, he was kind of unsure of himself, but was very like verbally, uh, obvious about the fact that like he wanted to be in a committed relationship and that he was looking to settle down and he thought he would be a good father at some point in his life. Hmm. Uh, and so these, and it was the same guy. Uh-huh. Like it was the same actor playing both roles. Huh. Now, I, I can't help but wonder to what extent uh, this involves the, the very human tendency. I think this occurs on, on you know both sides of the gender divide. This idea that that when you think about another person and you think about a relationship with that person, you think about ways that they are going to change right. in your relationship. Yeah. You know? yeah. She so, didn't get into that at all, but I did think about that, like the, the, I can fix him or I can fix her idea. Yeah. Is that what you're kind of getting yeah, at? Yeah. That's, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. And I could see where one could have that opinion. They're like, Oh, well, if she were in my life, if he were in my life, then I can, I can easily imagine how we come together and change with each other. But then when you're thinking about somebody else, you're like, oh, that's a disaster. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's just a bad story waiting to happen. Yeah. Exactly. And it, it, according to this study, how you think about that depends on where you are in your ovulation hmm. cycle. So that's interesting. All right. Let's take our second break. When we come back, we're going to get into the one that got her into trouble. This is the study on how ovulation supposedly affects voting. All right, we're back. So this is this is not surprising, right, that this would be the one to get her into trouble because we're already dealing with some problematic and uh, some problematic ideas here that 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 really provoke argument. And then you're going to throw politics into this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not only politics, but religion. Oh, so. uh, Yeah. So, again, this is the one that had a lot of controversy to it. Uh, they took the ovulation beha- behavior theory one step further and suggested that political and religious orientation is linked to reproductive goals and the ovulation cycle, and that changes women's views on politics and religion. And subsequently, their results show that ovulation led single women to vote more liberal and be less religious and be more likely to vote for Barack Obama in 2012. But ovulation in women in committed relationships were more likely to become conservative, more religious, and they were more likely to vote for Mitt Romney in 2012. Hmm. Women are more likely to vote than men are. That's just outside of ovulation studies. Like we know that as a statistic. Uh, and that makes them pivotal to anybody who's seeking office, right? You, you hear about this constantly on the talking head mm-hmm. shows, right? Like the, the female vote or the women vote or whatever. Right. Um, in 2012, Romney was favored by married women, 
but Obama was favored by single women. And it's been a, it's been a while. And boy, did we go through one hell of an election uh, just recently. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to remember this. But there was all of this talk, like all this horrible, dumb talk on like talk radio and CNN and stuff that it was like, oh, if single women are allowed to make the decision, <laughs> like we're going to end up with Barack Obama again, like that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, and this tendency to reduce all voters to like either single, either single topic, single issue voters, or just like single biological impulse uh, voters. Yeah. That being said, I have to say Romney and Obama, both very symmetrical individuals. Yeah, both attractive guys. I would like to see more politicians hit that note, like really have that be like a, a, a... key uh, talking point on their uh, on their campaign. I, I am, am a symmetrical, symmetrical individual. <laughs> <laughs> well, several theorists beyond Durante and her her uh, co-researchers have proposed that political and religious ideology are related to reproductive goals. And this is possibly because of an individual's mating strategy drives and that those affect their political and religious attitudes. Other studies have shown that mating concerns are strong predictors of religious service attendance, as well as what their social attitudes are relating to the legalization of marijuana. So what they did in this one was they did two separate studies. Now, remember what I said the, the earlier studies, they actually measured, you know, hormonally whether these women were ovulating. Uh, in this, they found participants via uh, some kind of software Amazon has called Mechanical Turk. I've never heard of it before. But they gave them small payments and they participated in basically surveys. Uh, the women supplied their menstrual period information that was gathered as well as their current relationship status and their demographic information. Then there was a scaled survey that was used to measure their religiosity. Second study, pretty similar methodology, but in addition, they examined political attitudes. They split them into attitudes on social attitudes or social issues and attitudes on economic issues. And they said that the distinction here was important because research has shown that reproductive goals are related to social political issues, but not economic ones. So following the survey, the participants were asked to indicate who they would vote for or who they might donate money to in the 2012 presidential election. And the essential argument here was that, first of all, uh, ovulating women are m- more interested in mating while their bodies prepare for reproduction and that sexual permissiveness is associated with lower religiosity and higher levels of liberal political ideology. So subsequently, single women experiencing increased reproductive impulses as a result of ovulation will hold less religious and more politically liberal preferences because they are interested in mating. Uh, and then they, they also said, meanwhile, paired women with the same reproductive impulses want to prevent infidelity in their relationships. Because that may cause them to potentially lose access to the resources they have to care for their children and themselves as a result of their relationship. Breaks. Like, like that one right there yeah. alone, I was like, oh, so this is basically implying like a woman can't raise children on her own. Yeah. Or, or at least that that's an idea in the back of most, uh, women's minds when they're married. I don't know. Uh, I, again, like super, super subjective, I think. Yeah, and I can. You know, I mean, it's obvious why this study did not set well with a lot of people because, yeah. at, at its core, it is taking something as as serious as one's uh, political views and something I you know often is, is nuanced and thought out. Something that you know, when we think about it, we think about all the experiences of the things we've read. Our whole life is leading up to our current political uh, viewpoint, but then to say. Actually, it's really more about your uh, re- reproductive impulses. Yeah. It's really about it's not about your your human view of the world. It's about your most basic animal instincts regarding the world. It totally takes out any kind of like complex decision making that's built into the human condition. Yeah. Um so yeah, I can see why people would be really upset by it. We're not going to jump into that criticism <laughs> right now because there's still one more study to cover. But we will get to the criticism, I promise, because let me tell you, this this thing got ripped to shreds. All right. 
last study, this is the most recent one as far as I can tell, comes from 2014, and it's about money and status in the ovulatory cycle. So this is one of the more recent ones. It found that women's monthly hormonal fluctuations seem to have an effect on their consumer behavior. This gets us back to the idea of, of marketing, right? Uh, I, I do want to add, too, that like with the voting study, the marketing thing didn't really seem to be able to come into play there. In fact, they like interviewed some political campaigners, and they were like, well, how could we possibly? It's not like we're going to knock on somebody's door and be like, hey, would you like to vote for our candidate? And when are you ovulating? Yeah. Like, you know, like that's not something that's going to come up. Yeah. How do you gain that? Yeah. Uh, however, so this hormonal fluctuation in consumer behavior systematically alters women's positional concerns, which could be important for marketers, consumers and researchers alike. This all this basically ties together all of Durante's research until now. Uh, so the hypothesis here is that that week long period near ovulation should boost a woman's desire for status and subsequently alter their economic decisions. Uh, and they found that women near ovulation seek quote unquote position goods to improve their social standing, but that this desire to improve social standing was relative with other women, not with other men, uh, Other studies have shown that women do not always choose to increase their financial standing over absolute gains over other women. 56%, uh, according to one study, would choose to take less money for themselves if it meant that they would gain relative status when compared to their peers. So the idea here is um, they have two choices. Uh, I, I get like... $40,000. $40,000. But if I get $40,000, my female peers get $60,000. Or I get $20,000. And if I get $20,000, my female peers only get $15,000. And so the the research seems to indicate that 56% would choose to take the lower amount of money solely so that they could make sure that their peers stayed beneath them. Hmm. Well, it seemed like the thing to do would be to Go to your peers and say, look, this mad genie approached me with this, exactly. this deal. Um, Why don't we split it evenly? Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's come up with a system that works better for everybody. You know, you're not far off. We're, we're actually going to um, talk about that in relation to the dictator game. Have, haven't you guys talked about the dictator game before? I want to say you and Joe covered it in a previous episode. I think so. I believe that came up. Uh, so the, if you're not familiar with this, the dictator game is uh, this this game where basically you give people a pile of money and mm-hmm. a, there's two players. The first player has the fixed amount of money and they're tasked with dividing it between their self and the other person across for them. So, so, so let's say it's you and me. Mm-hmm. You're given $100 and you have to decide how much of that $100 you give to me. Uh, and in this scenario, you're a dictator because okay. you get to decide. The dictator can give as much or as little as they want to. That's hence the dictating. Uh, but the more they give, the less they get for themselves. Okay. Okay. So a meta-analysis of all the game studies done on dictator studies indicates that people tend to give 25 to 50% of the money to the other person if they're a total stranger. So... In theory, you would give me somewhere between 25 to 50% of the money in your pile. Wait, you're a total stranger in this scenario. Though. Oh, yeah, that's right. We're not total strangers. Yeah. yeah. You would give me more, maybe. <laughs> Female dictators, though, mm-hmm. typically offer more money than male dictators. And people offer more money to female receivers than to male receivers. Hmm. Does that make sense? So you're more likely, if you're a woman, you're more likely to give more money to the person across from you. And if you're a, a woman, you're more likely to receive money from whoever uh, is the dictator in the game, regardless of gender. Hmm. Okay. So they used that in this study. This was one of the three studies they did to sort of uh, measure money and status and ovulation. Uh, so they hypothesized that ovulation would alter the size of the woman's offer in the dictator game. Uh, and they said, we think what they're going to do is they're going to give smaller financial offers to other women, but not to men. Uh, and they were led to believe the, that the other participant was a study, uh, sorry, a student in the same university as them. Now, when playing with a woman, an ovulating woman gave significantly less money 
than did those who were not ovulating. Ovulation did not have the same effect when women played with men. Women who were ovulating gave significantly more money to a male player than those who weren't ovulating. In fact, they actually gave them more than 50% of the endowment. So think about that. They, the, An ovulating woman with a man across from them, they've mm-hmm. got a $100 okay. sitting in a pile, and they say, I, I could give you some of this money. How much am I going to give to you? They gave them more than half. Wow. So they gave the, they gave they made it so that the the male across the table from them had more money than they did. Huh? Because I mean, I have to say at this point, I imagine a lot of you doing the same thing. You're going through all the relationships in your life and determining how much you're going to give them. Right. And I feel like 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 strangers, I'm probably going to give twenty five percent. Anybody that I know, everyone else, pretty much everybody else, divided regardless of gender, is getting fifty percent. Yeah. Unless you like, you're my wife and she gets, I guess I'll give her 75%. Yeah. And maybe yeah. I give my son 25% because what does he need? A, f- a five-year-old doesn't need that much money. Yeah, exactly. But everybody else just 50 across the board. Yeah. That seems like a fair way to do yeah, it, it, right? Seems like the way to do it. Uh, not very dictatorial, but pretty fair. <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, so, so this is like their interesting, like tidbit that they took away from this, which is like, wow, like, mm-hmm. like this really shows not only that there's competition between women, but that there's this idea that they're going to give more money to a man. Uh, And overall, the studies showed that ovulation didn't just affect women's choices when they were purchasing food or clothing, which, you know, we've talked about earlier, but it has a broader effect on their positional concerns in society uh, and that this particular phase in their cycle seems to lead them to jockey for position with other women. Now, I do want to throw in here that in figuring out how much money of the genie's gift I give to everyone. Right. I'm not discounting the fact that, yes, there are plenty of men who would definitely give more than 50% in an, an attempt, maybe even an, a non-conscious attempt, to impress the the other person. I think that might be the idea here, yeah. too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and let's keep in mind, they didn't measure men on this. And we're going to get to this at the end of the episode, but hey... Surprise, men are just as affected uh, by hormonal changes in decision-making as oh, women yeah. are. Yeah. It's just if not women are hormonal dominant. meat puppets, then men are definitely hormonal yeah, meat puppets. Yeah, totally. All right, let's dive into the criticism. Let's see what everybody really ripped into Durante about here. Uh, and those of you who are listening who are chomping at the bit and are like, oh, I hate this person, I can't <laughs> believe you guys are covering this, this is the section for you. So... Uh, in particular, that study about voting, which was done together with Ashley Arsena and Vladis Griskevicius, uh, that was heavily criticized and it was not well received. In fact, so CNN pulled it off of their site because they said it failed to meet their editorial standards. Hmm. And people online called it silly, stupid, sexist, and offensive. Science bloggers got together and they dissected and ridiculed the article as poor science. They said that it made false assumptions about human psychology. So there's a couple of like, uh, sources that I turn to here for some perspective on this, not just science bloggers. Right. Uh, in Psychology Today, Greg R. Murray wrote about it, and he said, look, this study appears to be fairly typical social science, but it suffers from a lot, something that a lot of people won't tolerate, which is the idea that biological factors might influence men and women to behave differently. Yeah. Christine Harris and Laura Mickes, I believe is how you pronounce it, or maybe it's Mix, they conducted a replication study of it. Uh, and their study was called Women Can Keep the Vote, No Evidence That Hormonal Changes During the Menstrual Cycle Impact Political and Religious Beliefs. Now, this replication failed to confirm two of Durante's three findings, but it did confirm that ovulating single women were more likely to vote for Barack Obama. Hmm. Okay? Let's step back again. uh, Greg R. Murray in Psychology Today, he says, look, this is what science is supposed to be. This is science at its best. What is supposed to happen is one study makes an argument, Another study replicates it and tries to confirm it. And the fact that this replication study wasn't a complete and utter failure actually calls for even more research. And again, he says, 
that's what's supposed to happen. Like that's, that's how this system is supposed to work. It's not like a one and done deal. Somebody does a study and we just accept that as given fact. Yeah, this is something that's come up on the show definitely before. Uh, specifically, I remember the uh, there was a study that came out about the the tardigrade being uh, like in its alien DNA, right? Oh yeah, and these the, are water bears. Yes, yeah. water bears. The yeah. the, the, the Kleino uh, Vasabaran. One of our favorites around here. Yeah, but this was an example where a study came out, made a, got a lot of coverage, and we even recorded an episode on it, and then. Uh, some uh, then some other researchers said actually there are problems with the study, etc. And this is an example of science in action. This yeah. is how science works. It's easy to lose track of that when so much of our reporting is you know really boils down to oh here's this new study that tells us how this thing works, which really every new study is helping us to better understand how the thing works and inch closer and closer with frequent missteps towards complete understanding. Yeah, and I think. I think we can say this from the position of people who work in digital media mm-hmm. that covers science, that oftentimes what you get is the article or video or podcast is presented to you as if, well, this one study was done, total to, total fact, right? This makes me think of uh, an old Lewis Black joke where, and I think I've brought this up on the show before, where he's like, study comes out and it says milk's good for you. Mm-hmm. Then study comes out and it says milk's bad for you. And then another study comes out and it says milk's good for you again. Wait, and he, he keeps getting more and more confused and angry about whether <laughs> he should drink milk or not, right? Uh-huh. And it's, it's kind of like that. Every time the study comes out, the articles that are written about the studies present them as if like, okay, here it is. This is the absolute fact. Get ready ready to change your life around this, right? Yeah. And whereas it's more like, well, here's some research. We're working on it. You know, science is a long-term process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. Another person tackled this in the New Republic, and it was a person named Charles Bethia. They looked at the study, uh, and they said critics of the paper called it, quote, a footnote to the long and inglorious history of sexist pseudoscience. Now, ironically... One Rutgers professor said that it was another troubling use of women's hormones to exclude them from politics or other societal opportunities. I say that's ironic because look back at our notes. Christina Durante works at Rutgers now. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if these people work uh, in the same department now and like how awkward that might yeah, be. Awkward uh, uh, coffee uh, machine interaction. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so another academic uh, saw the study as a growing trend in social science journals of publishing research that is, quote, fragile, unreliable, that cannot be replicated and does not generalize outside the lab to real world settings. Another referred to it as headline bait that is not obviously wrong. Now. You're probably wondering, well, what did Durante have to say about all of this? Well, she actually defended her research. She conducted an interview with the Chronicle of Higher Education to provide feedback on all this criticism that she was receiving. And I'll boil it down like this. She said she felt most media coverage of scientific work, uh, such as the CNN article, only highlighted the basic findings of the paper and left a lot of room for misinterpretation. That the methodology was criticized uh, for only asking women their opinions once in the specific study. And Durante argued specifically that she was using that Internet panel. Remember that like Amazon thing that I didn't really understand? Mm-hmm. She used that because she wanted to obtain a large and diverse sample of, of women for the study. And the only way she could do that, given probably where, where she was located at the time, was to use the Internet. She also said the methodology was criticized because she couldn't actually test the hormone levels of the participants. So remember, like in all those earlier studies, they used like various scientific methods to test right. you know, how they are ovulating. She said there's a large body of research that's looking at ovulatory effects on behavior right now, and it uses the same methodology. And those studies aren't being criticized. So why is mine being criticized? Uh, and I think we should also remember that in all of her other studies that we've talked about here, that she has measured hormone levels in the people. Uh, her interpretation of the data was criticized as well, because when you when you really drill down and you look at the data, it showed that a strong majority of both married and single women voiced support for Barack Obama. 
So again, this is something that we remember hearing back in 2012. Women love Barack Obama. They're going to be, you know, swing the vote, yada, yada. Durante argued that, yes, that was in general, but the differences themselves arose near ovulation. So she was saying, yeah, if you look in general at how these women uh, veered politically, yes, they, they tilted toward Obama, but the differences showed up when they were ovulating. Uh, her final thing, she said, look, the door is open to build on this research line. You can replicate it and expand upon it, which, as we know, somebody did. Uh, and there was one other exchange that was outside of this uh, Chronicle of Higher Education uh, interview where she said that understanding the causes of behavior can help change it. So if we know that the ovulatory cycle is subconsciously biasing women's behavior in a particular way, it's important to know this so that women can de-bias their behavior. And then this is a direct quote. After all, knowing the causes of our behavior empowers us to have more control over our choices. So that is the gist. She's done a lot more studies, but these were the ones that were relevant to what I think is the most important takeaway from this, which is where is this all going? Well, it suggests that ovulating women are going to be more responsive to advertising, promotions and messages, uh, and then subsequently uh, these messages are going to emphasize, hey, if you buy our product, you're going to have positional superiority over other women. And like we said earlier, regardless of whether or not Robert or I or you listening believe in these studies and, and find them to be valid, there are certainly marketers out there who have read these and are are uh, rubbing their hands together <laughs> and planning their their attack, right? Uh, it suggests that marketers who can't ascertain a woman's cycle information directly could use a 28-day marketing method based on their purchase histories. I think I mentioned that earlier. Using that information, they would then strategically send out messages that emphasize female competition, specifically when female consumers would be more responsive to these appeals during their ovulatory phase. Uh, so I, I want to just pause here for a second. Like next time I'm uh, listening to a podcast or I'm on an app, I'm reading the news or I'm uh, watching TV and some commercials pop up. I'm going to be paying attention for the ads that specifically show competition between women because I'm curious if this is going to be a trend now that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting when you consider just like tracking not only what you're buying, but also what you're shopping for. The, I can't help but think of uh, the, the interactions you see between Amazon and Facebook yeah. uh, based on your, your browsing history. Like I do one search for Black Play-Doh, and then all I'm seeing is, uh, is advertisements <laughs> for Black Play-Doh on uh-huh. Facebook. And you know, Amazon is keeping track of what you're looking at, when you're looking at them. Now, I don't know to what extent they're actually incorporating this uh, marketing approach. But knows, you can yeah. see where it would be very easy for them to, to do it, to at least extrapolate a rough ovulation cycle for a given uh, user based on what they've been looking at on Amazon. What would be even scarier to me is, is you know, I, I don't, I've never downloaded one of these ovulation apps, mm-hmm. but I would imagine that the terms of service probably allow them to share that information with third parties, right? Like, uh, I'm not sure, but like, so they could say, well, I've got information on, uh, Christina Sager, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, this is when she ovulates. I'm going to sell this to, you know, Amazon or I'm going to sell right. this to like these third party, uh, internet advertisers. So, you know, it's, it's, that's the insidious part to me. And that's the part that kind of like really shocked me when I saw her present this information live was like, Whoa, that is, that is like it's a crazy. whole yeah. new level. And think about it like, that's just one thing that we're tracking. Think about all the other things that are being tracked based on like our browsing histories or like our, our mobile phone interactions, you know? Yeah. You can, and you can, you can compare all of these to different timelines such as what's going on in the news. Totally. Seasonal information, uh, it really kind of breaks down our sense of autonomy after a while. Yeah. Um, all right. I said this at the top, but I, I, I want to reiterate this. I really don't want the takeaway here to be something as traditionally chauvinistic as, well, women can't be trusted because of their bodies, right? Like, that's ridiculous. Uh, this is interesting psychology and biology. It does not mean that women are incapable of making rational decisions, though. Yeah, yeah, no more than, than men. Uh, 
Uh, for sure. Yeah, I, th- I think the advantage in examining this research or, or any research like this is to take it and compare it to your own decisions, you know, not necessarily to second guess your instincts, but to ask questions about your behavior. Um, you know, research on, say, uh, male sex driven consumer choices have certainly forced me to stop and examine, you know, to say, well, why am I considering this album over another? Why am I considering, uh, you know, this, uh, this, this movie, this TV title, whatever? Uh, so it's not about, it's not about seeing the puppeteer strings and accepting them or even about breaking them, but figuring out, like, what is the shape of your own autonomy? And, uh, and, and what are some of the, the many factors that are influencing your behavior? Yeah. I mean, I thought the same thing. I'm like, I have absolutely had moments where, like, I, I don't know, maybe I'm sad or I'm in kind of like a, a different mood and I go, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to go to the comic book store and just buy a big pile of comic books or, mm-hmm. or I'll buy a bunch of records, you know, they'll, yeah. they'll make me feel better. And who knows what kind of hormonal fluctuations I'm going through when that's happening. And who knows is, is, is actually important here because like maybe we should be tracking that in men as well. It's worth remembering there's research that other hormones like testosterone and cortisol also have effects on important human behaviors. So look, men aren't off the hook here. Uh, and maybe that's a future episode for us to consider. So if, if you're interested in that, you know, maybe we can look into seeing if there's studies related to that. Yeah. So that is the breakdown here. Controversial stuff. I think it's kind of interesting, though, especially when you when you put in the business aspects. So what do you out there think? You know, you've heard these arguments. You've heard this research. Do you agree with it? Do you agree with the criticisms of it? And what do you think about this marketing? Like, is this a valid route for us to be going down in a capitalistic society, which is basically like, let's figure out how to aim like laser focus to their biology. And that's how we'll get them to spend money out of their pocket. Yeah, it's like hormonal mind reading or even hormonal mind control. Right. So you can let us know. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. Those are all places where you can talk to us or find this episode and download it. So check it out. And remember, Tripod Month is going on, and I recommend that you try Slings and Arrows, which is where I learned about Christina Durante's research to begin with. You can find this episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind and all other episodes, including videos, blog posts, Etc. at stufftoblowyourmind.com. And if you want to send us an email to give us your feedback on this episode or others that we've recorded, just simply shoot us one at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. I'm <laughs> sorry.